common in um, early to mid-December or early to mid-May, which is that I was interviewed by a college student. This has happened maybe five or six times since, uh, since we've been around here at Wellsprings, and it's normally because they're taking one of two courses, American Religions or Religion in America, something like that. And what they have to do is they have to report on a particular, um, you know, American spiritual tradition. And so I was interviewed by a college student who had actually been here w- once with us before and wanted to understand the demographics and our traditions and how we came to be. And because this person had been here with us just that one time, they wanted to know how we were continuing to grow and develop. And she asked as well, what was I talking about in my message series? Sometimes she listened to the podcast, and I described this one, welcoming dark, welcoming light. And I said, you know, it's, it's really about learning, learning not to run away from the dark things because we fear them, not to run anxiously towards the light because we think we have to have them. And she paused for a second. And I could hear her take in a really deep breath and then exhale. And she said, yeah, it's okay that I'm sad sometimes. And I said, well, you have just summed up the entirety of this message series. So (laughs) but I mean, really, she had, you know, because in that what she said, I heard someone actually sort of claiming back the wholeness of their life. I heard a ease and, and a healing and, and a kind of easing up on herself, you know, that this is something she had really struggled with, this sense to claim her innate wholeness, that all of her life really did belong together. And truth be told, I also was probably projecting my experience back then onto her as a college student because I struggled so much through so much of my college years, young adult years, with those difficult emotions, with the afflictive emotions, and not very often in healthy ways. And in such ways very often that all I did was sort of dig myself further and deeper into the trench while trying to escape, kind of like one of those cartoon characters that spins their wheels on the ice and they just end up falling back on their butt. That internal warfare that I had against myself just fueled the fire to fight more and to continue losing. And really what her words did, the sense of wholeness, the sense of peace and healing that I sensed just in that one phrase, it brought home to me the wonderful ending to the loving kindness meditation that I work with on a regular basis, the Buddhist metta meditation, loving kindness meditation, that the final words, the final mantra says regularly over and over again, may all beings live with ease. May all beings live with ease. And I didn't hear in her, you know, you know, may all beings live with ease could be, let's face it, um, the advertisement for a spa, which is fine. I mean, spa kind of stuff is good. It's fun. Massages are wonderful. I've told a story in the past in my preaching about a massage I had that was truly a mystical spiritual experience. But that's not what she was talking about. She was not talking about the kind of ease where everything becomes easy. It was, may all beings live with ease. And this being was learning how to. She was learning how to let go of that internal struggle, that being divided against it within herself. That's what I heard, and that's what this message series is all about, welcoming light, welcoming darkness. It is learning to let both in and also learning to let both out. It is at base truly about aspiring 
what abundance really means. Not the kind of abundance this time of the year when it's about a lot of having and getting and sometimes even giving abundance. That's wonderful. But the kind of abundance that Thoreau, our great sage, was talking about when he described when he went to the woods to live intentionally, he did it because he didn't want to get to the end of his life and find that he had never lived in the first place. It is this kind of adventuresome living, this kind of living that requires a certain kind, a certain understanding of vulnerability. Not the kind of vulnerability that makes us victims and not the kind of vulnerabilities that we stress about in a post-September 11th world. Although the more and more and more we worry about those things to the detriment of our strengths and our gifts, the more we will find ourselves becoming more fearful and fear will crowd out everything else. The kind of vulnerability that I am talking about today is the kind of vulnerability that allows us to welcome home our lives. The kind of vulnerability that is the deepest amount of strength I think that any of us can experience. It is very different from how strength is normally understood in our culture. I heard an example of this this past week. My godson, he's a six-year-old named Malcolm, wonderful kid. Both his parents are longtime friends of mine. They're both Episcopal priests. So, of course, especially in this Advent season leading to Christmas, they have little nativity figures and nativity scenes throughout their house. And Malcolm, my godson, was playing with the Jesus figure this past week, and she posted this, mom did, on her Facebook status. Baby Jesus is super strong and can fight off all the bad guys. Now, for a six-year-old, especially Malcolm, whose entire world revolves around super friends and various heroes, it is completely understandable that his understanding of Jesus would be like that. Jesus is just another superhero. The problem is, is when other ways of growing spiritually cannot grow beyond that. That kind of strength, the kind of strength that beats up all the bad guys and takes care of everything. And by the way, this is why the guys who created South Park, Matt and Trey, as much as they might go over the line regularly, this is why they are the best, in my opinion, social critics of our era. Because when they have Jesus show up on South Park, he appears as one of the super friends. They are lampooning that way of thinking about Jesus that has stayed in childhood. They make fun of it, and it is funny. It's laughable. But sometimes when people stay in this understanding of strength, it is not funny at all. And so I share with you the name Brian Fisher that maybe some of you have heard of. He's a part of a fairly innocuous sounding group that isn't innocuous at all called the American Family Association. They're a pretty hard right Christian group. And the one thing that Brian Fisher was really irate about at this Christmas season, this just wasn't the war on Christmas, this was his war for Christmas it seems, The thing he was complaining about is that he said the Medal of Honor, you know, that high, high military honor that is given to the people who fight in and with and for our military, that Medal of Honor has been feminized. He says the problem is that the Medal of Honor is not being given to enough people who kill people. It's being given to too many people who save people. This is what he said. Award the Medal of Honor once again for soldiers who kill people and break things. His words, not mine. And then, because his is the kind of understanding of Christianity that is intolerant of other traditions, which I don't think was Jesus' faith at all, he brings it back to Jesus himself. 
He says that Jesus on the cross inflicted a mortal wound on the enemy. This led to one of my favorite bloggers, a guy named Andrew Sullivan, starting a whole link of posts with the wonderful and very much tongue-in-cheek phrase, how Jesus kicked ass on the cross. And people started sending him pictures like this one. Welcome to Rambo, Jesus. Welcome to Roid Raid, Jesus. And if you can't read that from here, I'll read it to you. Imagine this in sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator. You drew a first blood, but I'll be back. What this figure, I mean, if you can get close, I mean, see this. This is Jesus who has been pumping iron his entire life. This is a Jesus who looks like a young Arnold Schwarzenegger. What this had to do with the Jesus who, by the way, was not nearly this white, who was lucky in his day and age to maybe get to five foot, if that, who was a radical rabbi preaching a gospel of inclusion who hung out not with the cool kids or the tough crowd, but with those who've been marginalized by his society. What that radical rabbi who was doomed to death, capital punishment by the empire of his time, has to do with that, I have no clue whatsoever. It is as if, to paraphrase from one of the gospel stories, they've taken my Jesus and I don't know what they have done with him. This makes so little sense. It is a reflection of that kind of six-year-old, Jesus is the super tough guy and can beat up all the bad guy way of understanding strength. And it is so different from one of the ways of understanding Christmas that I particularly like, which is the idea, as the Christian tradition talks about it, of incarnation, of the divine becoming human. And what is more human and more vulnerable than a child. This vision of a complete dominance of light over darkness is neither light nor darkness ultimately. It's more like the power of a nuclear bomb that obliterates rather than the power of enlightenment that invites us into deeper understanding and deeper compassion for our lives. This kind of light cannot be true light. This kind of strength cannot be true strength because it seeks to obliterate darkness rather than create a deeper path for our living. I understand why people want to worship something like this, even though I do not. I think it answers one of our primal fears. One of our primal fears as human beings, which is life is really a zero-sum game. We will either exercise power over other people, or we will have it exercised over us. Either we obliterate, or we are obliterated. Either we fight, or we engage in flight. Indeed, some of the most famous words ever written in the English language are all about this. You know these words. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. All apologies to Shakespeare. He left out the most important choice. By non-aggression with our troubles... Not to end them, but to end their power over us. This is the work of creative nonviolence or creative non-aggression. Any of you know the martial art Aikido? Have you ever seen it practiced? Aikido was generated for two reasons. One, because of the need of self-defense. We should not have the kind of vulnerability that allows people to assault us. But at the same time, Aikido was developed out of concern for the person who was attacking as well. 
Take a look, if you ever can, at an Aikido demonstration. It is amazing. The person who is the practitioner of Aikido throws no punches. Instead, what they do is redirect all that harmful energy away and in such a way that seeks not to cause harm to the aggressor. Aikido, which literally translates in English to this, the way of unifying with life energy. The way of unifying with our life energy. It is a form not of armament, but of spiritual disarmament. It is a way, perhaps the primary way to that deeper vulnerable strength. That paradox of finding that peace by learning not to fight. Yes, to be strong, but not to be the aggressor. This is the healing capacity of wholeness that I heard in that college student's voice when she had learned to claim her life back. It's okay to be sad sometimes. It is the kind of claiming and healing that I remember. Sometimes they find these in archaeological digs that the ancient Greeks had something that they called tear jars, if maybe you've ever heard of this. That instead of just wiping away their tears or hiding their tears, some traditions in ancient Greece actually thought that the tears were sacred. That they were offering back to life because of life's pleasure and life's pain, life's joy, life's darkness, life's light. And so you can find actual archaeological little containers of tear jars where people held and made sacred how they expressed life's meaning to them. We see this spiritual healing, this spiritual disarmament when, and I see it with the best parents that I know with their kids, and I also see it with really, really strong and grounded adults too. When the world seems to be spinning away from us, particularly when another person is furious at us, screaming at us, and instead of just leaving or abdicating or running away, or instead of returning that verbal violence with our own volley, the simple words are said, I cannot listen to you and I will not listen to you when you are screaming at me. I will listen to you when you speak to me with respect. That is spiritual disarmament. And I heard the words of spiritual disarmament from a young woman named Jenny, 32 years old, whose entire life had been about strength. Six Seven days a week, she said she went to the gym, always fighting, she said, the battle of the bulge, the battle against her body, always looking to get that fierce edge up or else she would be losing. Life was a zero-sum game to her. She said, unless I went for an hour a day and came out smelling really bad, I lost. I failed. And then Jenny, when she was 32, was diagnosed with cancer. And it's not that she was grateful for the disease, but in working with the basic facts of her existence, she grows into a place of appreciating how much her body does, not as an enemy or as an adversary, but as just struggling and striving to keep her alive. That she is not fighting the battle of the bulge anymore and that her body is not against her. And for all those years that she went to all those yoga classes and it was all about getting tighter and tougher, for the first time she actually listens to what the yoga teacher says to her when she says these words and she believes them. There is no war within you. You can be on your own side. Your body can connect you 
with the earth and with heaven. All these are spiritual disarmaments, bringing us peace and wholeness and healing and that greater sense of belonging to life with a deeper unity. So often in our lives, we divide ourselves up, the light over here, the darkness over there, thinking that they are not connected to each other or even worse, not connected within ourselves. We divide ourselves right down the line. Sometimes we refuse the dark or cling anxiously to the lights because we don't see that there is always an interplay between the two. Neither light nor darkness are static. No matter how dark it seems at 3 a.m. in the morning, that darkness is not the same as it is at 3.01. No matter how light it is at 12.01 in the afternoon, it is different at 12.02. I think we can see this in our lives, and that's why so many of us love sunrise and sunsets, because at dawn and at dusk, we see both. They are there, they are in relationship, they are moving between each other. I think if we could allow ourselves to say, and this is perhaps the most profound act of spiritual disarmament, is that in our lives it is always dusk or it's always dawn. The light and the darkness are always in some movement and relationship with each other, not opposites. When we can do this, we can practice what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing, deep relationship with our lives, not looking to segment up our experience and say, that doesn't count, this counts. And then we're left somehow at the end of our lives, like Thoreau was saying, with a really big pile of stuff that we think doesn't count because we didn't pay attention to it. And maybe a smaller pile of the stuff that we said, yes, we'll pay attention to this over here. With the lights and the darkness and allowing them both to be and allowing them in, we let ourselves back into life as well too. Many of you know that here at Wellsprings, we just got done the month of November, the month of gratitude, our 30 days of gratitude practice. I'm going to share with you right now part, just part of what my favorite post was for that day. It's by Dr. Brene Brown. Now, she's a researcher and a professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Houston. And her research is about courage and strength and vulnerability and shame and guilt and recovery. I quoted her a couple weeks ago, and this gives you a slightly larger context for what you're about to see, when she said that we cannot selectively numb our lives. We're just not built that way. If we want to numb ourselves to the darkness, we will also numb ourselves to the capacity, the deep capacity we have for light. Why don't you play that? If you ever worked with a personal trainer, and I remember this when I started to about 10, 15 years ago, and I said, well, tell me about what your goals are. And I said, well, I don't like this in here, and I'd like these to be a lot bigger. And they said, well, you know what? You can't really spot lose. <laughs> we'll work on all of you, and you, know, you might see some results over time. It's exactly what she was saying there, that we cannot selectively numb our vulnerability. If we do, we will find ourselves losing out on all of who we are. I remember this a number of years ago. It was just after Teresa and I moved here, and we weren't even married yet. And she didn't experience this down in Florida. She has really bad asthma, but in Florida, it's sort of, you know, there's sort of hot spring and then really, really hot summer. It's only two seasons. But we were at our first fall here, and she had a miserable asthma attack in the middle of the night. I mean, her lips were almost turning blue. I had to rush her to the emergency room. We got better treatment. It was okay. But really what I remember... And I didn't vocalize it at the time because I'm, I'm, I try not to be a jerk. But I remember how furious I was. I was so angry because I felt so vulnerable 
and so incredibly helpless. I think ultimately love requires, and I say this lightly, but intentionally, that love even commands that we know what vulnerability is. That we know that as we truly love ourselves and other people and life itself, that our comfort will be compromised. To seek the other path is to know over and over and over again that the force with which we repel, no, I'm not letting you in here. The force with which we repel our negative emotions or the things we think we cannot handle is often the same force with which we dig ourselves in in wanting to escape from ourselves. As she says in there, we can want more and more and more, more and more and more security, running out of colors to alarm ourselves with to the point that we just want to curl up in a little ball and say enough. Or we can seek that deeper path of wholeness and healing which is learning to disarm our everyday enemies found most often right in here and in here. This allows us to catch up with the deeper meaning of our lives. It means paradoxically by accepting the buffeting and the waves and the lack of peace at times that we can find the deepest peace that there is. It's the kind of peace that my favorite line of poetry by the Caribbean poet Derek Walcott said, When he says the sea is a place that is soothing in its unrest. The sea is a place that is soothing in its unrest, in its constant movement. If we focus just on the big wave, we will say it is too overwhelming. But if we see the wave as part of that larger movement of the ocean, we will come to accept that wave as just part of it. We don't get the ocean without at first accepting the waves. And without accepting the waves and then accepting the oceans, we will not know peace. Accepting lights and accepting darkness means working with this ancient symbol. This ancient symbol in which both the light and the dark contain an element of each other. And when I view this yin-yang, I actually don't see it as just a static picture. I see it not spinning like a, a kind of, you know, spin cycle, a turbulence. But I see it moving. That cyclical movement of our lives in which dark and light contain each other and nothing is ever static because it is always dusk and always dawn and the light and the darkness are always right here with us. If we can accept that, we are allowing ourselves, giving ourselves permission to move to that place where the opposites are unified and where light and darkness make themselves both into something new and grand. It's the words of the great progressive Catholic theologian Karl Rahner who said his experience of God was the experience of super luminous darkness. Simultaneously super luminous darkness. It's a paradox. It's like a Zen koan. It doesn't make sense. How can darkness be super luminous? Well, every year, At this time of year, I have a vision of that, and it's my favorite perspective where I live. So we moved into our house in the summertime, and looking out off the sixth story, out of our windows where we look, we saw just a huge canopy and blanket of green flowering trees. It was actually gorgeous. We thought there was just a forest down there. Well, come fall time, as the leaves started to fall off the trees, we saw that, in fact, there was a whole neighborhood there. When we get to winter time, the spare time, the seemingly sparse or scarce time, I see all the lights of that neighborhood. And last night I actually didn't sleep very well. 
And so I got up at one o'clock in the morning and stood looking out from our windows and saw in that darkness each of those little houses with holiday lights or street lights next to them or lights that welcome people home. And I stood there long enough where actually what I started to see was other people like me who could get to sleep a little easier than me because I started to see lights on the second story go out and people say goodnight. And I thought each of these would not be what they are without the other. The light and the darkness each made more beautiful because both exist in harmony with each other and that is superluminous darkness. I felt like a kid, I tell you, when I was standing there and a little bit of the old poetry came through my brain. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Perhaps this is the deepest of all the December dreams of this time of the year. That there really is enough room at our inn for the people who we yearn to be. For the light and the darkness within us. Perhaps that dream of December is not just about welcoming other things to us, but about welcoming ourselves back to ourselves. And knowing that at the deepest level, as much as sometimes we don't think it's true, that it is true, that we belong and we are welcomed home. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Divine of darkness and light who does not divide them, but in whose greater being the unity is experienced. A simple prayer today. May we welcome the light and welcome the darkness. May we welcome ourselves practicing that radical hospitality with all who we are. May we be welcomed home. May we know that we...